Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields. We will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Season three, back to the Texas Killing Fields, Sunday Slasher, and Evil Eyes. So when we left you off last time, we were discussing the Harris County DA, John Holmes, who said of Watts, he didn't rape them, he didn't steal from them. It's not people he knew, it's just cold calculating killing. This was what John Holmes was facing at the time that he's trying to figure out what they're going to do with Coral Eugene Watts. Obviously they had him red handed with the abduction and the attempted murder um, in the apartment of Lori and her roommate, but they had a lot more going on. They had Canada and Michigan breathing down their necks because they really wanted to figure out how to solve their unsolved homicides in that area. And then they had several unsolved homicides in Texas that there was a task force looking into. And so some of them, a good deal of them, they actually expect uh, suspected Watts for. And so John Holmes is really tasked with trying to decide what he's going to do. What's the best case solution here? And as we talked about in the last episode, you know, they didn't have a lot of the tools that we would have expected today. Right. They couldn't go to the DNA. Um, They couldn't go to cameras. They couldn't go to any of that. And for some of these victims, it's not like those victims. He didn't necessarily have all the same profile. He didn't always drown people in the bathtub. So we have these two cases, the Mayday case and the Lori case, where he's trying to attempt to drown them, drown Lori in the bathtub, and then the Mayday case where she's actually found in the bathtub. But it wasn't his modus operandus in all of these cases. So they had to figure out what they were going to do and how they best could solve these cases. So John Holmes basically gets together with several of these communities and comes up with the plan to give him immunity on the charges that he confesses to. Um, I think it referred to occasionally as like queen for a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's more of a um, term that's used kind of in some of these court drama TV shows and stuff, but that's basically what they're doing. They're giving him the ability to confess to these crimes. Um, and they're not going to go after him for it. They're only going to charge him with Lori's case and her the roommate's case. Mm-hmm. And he kind of has to lay it all on the line at one given time and right. no BS involved with it. You right. know, I mean, just lay it all out. But what happens is Canada and Michigan do not agree to that. Right. So, um, and I think what Watts does is he actually confesses to the murder of a Detroit woman, Gina Klein. And I think he's doing that to kind of tease Michigan a little bit, give them like a little bit of a teaser. Um, But 
he doesn't confess to any of the other cases there because he wasn't getting immunity. Um, and so there's a judge who proceeds over the um, proceedings of getting him the immunity deal and all of that. And that judge is um, Judge Shaver and kind of in an odd twist because last season we did the <clears throat> Candyman case. We talked about Elmer Wayne Henley, who was one of the accomplices of Dean Coral in that case. Well, that uh, Judge Shaver was actually the assistant DA on the Elmer Wayne Henley case. So he said in his lifetime, it was strange that you would find yourself being involved in two cases of serial killers. I know. And one area. Actually, in this area, I don't actually find it that surprising. <laughs> no, we don't now, right? Yeah. But at the time, I but guess, it, yeah. you know, um, and to be in the same jurisdiction, I mean, that's almost unbelievable. It, you know, yeah. I mean, how, like, how many times has it had it since, you know, too, so. So, um, so Watts is connected to several different cases, um, and so he confesses to 12 murders in Texas, although investigators believed he was responsible for more like 80 to 100 cases. Watts alluded to the fact that there were more. He did not elaborate unless he was a promised immunity. Um, and he said basically the number could be over 80. And that's in total, right? That's, that's in total. Michigan, Canada, and everywhere else in between that he might have. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, that's in total. And a good portion of them would be in the Michigan and Canada area. But I think what's important, especially as we talk about the Texas killing fields and the area that we've been focused on, he confesses to these cases, but he doesn't confess to all the cases in Texas that they do believe he's responsible for. Yeah, but, you know, sometimes I wonder, especially with, like, his type of killing where it's, I don't want to say at random, but it's provoked maybe by just, I don't know, a feeling or a rage moment. He may not remember necessarily. You know, like, it's almost like you get to that, like instant level and you come down from it and then it's like whoa you know what i mean like and maybe he didn't i mean because from what we understand he identified his victims by feeling like they had evil eyes right and so they like could be and i mean it's strange i think we talked about it a little bit in the last episode like they could be driving by him and he would like at a glance at, yeah at a know? glance think that that person had evil eyes and so so i don't know i mean there's definitely that thing that goes on between the psychiatrists and the psychologists and stuff like that, where they differ on what his diagnosis was. Obviously, I feel like there's some mental illness here. Sure. Um, I mean, you find that often in perpetrators like him that have that relation. You know, like some people uh, are like, use the God factor or I was saving them or whatever. I mean, it's almost the same thing. It's that like instant switchover. Right. Mm hmm. The first case we're going to talk about is September 5th, 1981. That was Laura Catherine Tilly. I'm sorry, Linda Catherine uh, Tilly. She was a 22-year-old student at the University of Texas. Her body was found floating in the pool outside her Austin apartment on September 5th, 1981. Her death was first ruled an accident. It was ruled this way until Watts admitted that he fought with her before drowning her in the pool. She was found fully clothed and he actually intended to murder somebody else who he had seen in Houston and followed all the way to Austin. But when he got to Austin, he lost her. 
And when you talk about this trip from Houston to Austin, that's 160 miles. It's five hours trip. To follow somebody. Yeah. That looked at you crazy, according to you. That's some dedication. I'm, that is definitely some dedication. So and, you, and like in the ability not to lose them. You know, yeah. the, <laughs> come on. Wow. So when he arrives in Austin, he loses this person. He actually spots Tilly's car. He's thought he had found her but then he realized that he didn't and so he fights with Tilly and drowns her in the pool you know this case really kind of gets to me because the police so quickly closed this case saying that it was you know an accidental drowning case where you know she fell into the pool fully clothed and then drowned um a pool at her apartment complex it's just, it's sad because I think there were some signs there. I'm not saying that police could have solved this early on, but I feel like they rushed to judgment. In this right. Case. You know, there were bruises on her. There were obviously signs of a struggle and a fight. Um, and yet the case the police and the medical examiners just rushed quickly and closed this case you wonder why they would do that because like you said i mean there had to be some obvious signs i mean there may not have been a lot of them but if she has the ability to swim which i'm sure you could find that out from friends or neighbors or whatever you would wonder what happened for her to be um i guess where she's not able to do so to save her life. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Especially if she's being strangled or beaten because they said they fought, right? So, yeah. I mean, it's, there had to be something there. Yeah, apparently there was quite a struggle. He, I mean, he talks about that she put up quite a fight. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, you know. I, and I mean, you're talking the 80s now. So, I mean, it's not like. No, it's not like it was ancient. Yeah. So. So the next case we're going to talk about is the September 12th, 1981 murder of Elizabeth Ann Montgomery, age 25. She was the assistant manager at a clothing store about midnight on September 13th, 1981. She was walking her dogs when Watts walked up to her and stabbed her once in the chest. Her fiancé, wow, couldn't get that word out. Her fiancé, Bill, heard her call. Oh, God. Oh, Bill. He ran to the door of their apartment in time to catch her as she died in his arms. Friends was surprised that um, someone would approach Elizabeth with her dogs. Her dog Hub Hubcap was a large breed dog known as a domestic timber wolf. Well, maybe it was the dog that had the evil eyes. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, because you have no fear at that point. But I mean... Yeah, I mean, to be so close to um, the building, to the apartment, yeah. to where the fiancé can come out and see her in those last moments. I mean, that's relatively quick for somebody to be on scene after he does that, right? So, I mean, we already know he's, like, in and out pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, he's incredibly brazen. Mm -hmm. And then this even shows you, like, how much more brazen. Because... And especially as women, when we're walking, like, especially a large breed dog, you own a large breed dog or a horse. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when you're walking him, 
you have that sense of security that you're safe because he's, I mean, even that sense of security that you have a large dog. So therefore, you know, if somebody was to break into the house or attempt to break into the house, the large dog is going to scare them off. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and it's really the little one they should be afraid of in my case. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So, um, yeah, no, because we, we use that as a security blanket. Right. And I'm sure that gave her some security to be out walking her dog. Well, and especially at that time of night, Mm -hmm. you know, um, again, when you're looking at this, the Houston area in the eighties, it was not actually, it's safer nowadays than it was in the eighties. So I do think the dog gave her a bit of sense of security. So, but for him, it didn't really put him off. Because within just a few hours of stabbing Montgomery, he actually stabbed another woman, Susan Marie Wolf, who was a 21-year-old clerk who worked at Kroger. She had only been living in Houston for about six months. And it was just within a few hours that he stabbed her six times in the chest and the arm, and she passed away. I mean, he is just... I don't know. He's like, you don't want to say a rampage, but it's like he goes to these fits or something. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, it, it is really, it's kind of like, well, you know, what becomes very clear is that he night on these nights, on these weekends, and that's why you have that Sunday slasher kind of term that he gets is because he'd be out prowling late on Saturday night and we find these women early on like Sunday morning. Um, and so he's prowling basically like looking, I mean, he puts it on that they had evil eyes or something like that, but he's, he's looking for these women. Yeah. I mean, he's looking for that, like almost as an excuse to me, you know what I mean? It's like, Oh no, she had evil eyes. No, you literally stalked her for a minute or, Uh or stalking in general. And that's, who became your victim yeah because he wants to make it sound like you know these women crossed his path Mm -hmm. and he noticed them but he was out literally looking almost like a savior complex you know on january 17th 1982 phyllis ellen tam was a 27 year old art director for the houston advertising agency she would drug jog three miles a day when on january 4th 1982 watts spotted her jag jogging and grabbed her and used her tube scarf that was kind of around her neck to hang her from a small tree the harris county medical examiner tried to say that her death was a possible accident or suicide her uncle came from memphis to advocate for the fact that his niece did not kill herself only when Watts confessed did this change. Okay, so you tie yourself to a tree and hang yourself to commit suicide? Is that what they're saying? Yes. With with a scarf and a small tree? Yes. That's crazy. Well, what's, I mean, even, what's even crazier is the accident part of that. Yeah. Like, you're jogging along and you accidentally strangle yourself with a tree? Like, here's this woman who drives jogs three to four miles a day and she gets snagged up with a tree and she can't manage to get herself unsnagged and so she accident she's so frail that she accidentally strangles herself i mean are you, sometimes i cannot make this stuff up i guess that's the thing but you know often 
you know, in those times, they looked at women like that. You know, like they're like suicidal were... or they're runaways or it was just an accident or she wasn't paying attention. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of that. Quick to solve. Quick you know, to close. It's so very interesting because we kind of have the opposite with Lucas where he confesses to some of these killings that were obviously accidents, right? And so we talked about those in the last couple of episodes, some of those killings where he talks about these obvious accidents. And then you have these obvious murders that are just getting pushed off as accidents. It's, it's just mind blowing, you know, that better, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like, you know, though in those cases, they were pushing for answers that didn't need to be pushed for. But in this case, there's, you know, her uncle's having to come from Memphis to be like, I don't think she strangled herself with a tree. Mm-hmm. I don't think she got hung up in a tree. Yeah. You know, just... Especially being physically fit. Right. And you're talking a small tree. So, I mean, small tree in relevance is a small tree. Well, and believe me, trees go pretty big in Texas. So yeah. a small tree is like a sapling. It's like a, yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's you know, a small tree. And she couldn't wrestle herself out of the tree. And she's probably jogged that area many, many days. I, like, I just, I don't even know how they came up with that one. But on Sunday, January 17th, 1982, Margaret Evenson, who went by uh, Meg, was um, Margaret Everson Fossey, who went by Meg, was an architect student at Rice University. She and her husband, Larry, planned to live in Houston permanently. When he finished law school, he was away at law school in, at Yale. She was reported missing by a relative that she lived with. She had gone out with fellow students to Gilly's Club. They dropped her off at the car that was parked in the Rice University parking lot, and her friends watched her drive out of the parking lot, heading home around 2.30 a.m., when family members that she lived with found the car. They called the police to tell them that they had found it, and it had two flat tires. Police came out, towed it to their lot. It was a day later that they took a look at the car and found her in the trunk. Police said that they waited to open the trunk because they did not want to disturb any fingerprints. Family members said that they begged police to open the trunk of the car, but they waited 26 hours. The family worried that she was alive in the car when it was found and that waiting she had died. Police believed that robbery may have been the motive as her wedding ring and necklace and the car keys were missing. Uh... The university quickly offered a $30,000 reward for more information and anything leading to the arrest. So, this is difficult. This is difficult because there is the possibility Uh that she was alive. There's always the possibility. You can't take that out. You don't know because the way that she was killed was Watts actually killed her with one blow to her throat that fractured her larynx. Um. So, I think I don't know. Could have been some shallow breathing there, and you know, you you don't know. But we do know because look at the case that happened what just six, seven months ago out here, where this young woman was in the trunk of her car and she was there for two days, right? Before they even opened it up, and the mom again is saying open it up yeah open the trunk and there and in that case they're saying oh we don't actually 
you know, have probable cause to mm-hmm. open up the trunk, you know. Um, and I mean, the cops have come out later in that case and say, you know, we didn't stop her from doing it, but she didn't, right? A little bit different situation because this car is actually in their possession. Yeah, you know, actually. So, and I'm not, I mean, we are talking 1982, so I do believe that cops have could have taken fingerprints off the trunk before opening the trunk. I think they could have figured that one out a little bit. Um, I just, you know, and then robbery because the keys were stolen, but the car wasn't stolen. I mean, I get it. I understand they're working with the wedding ring and the necklace too, but they also are like, but the keys were missing also, but it's parked in front of her house. Yeah, but they didn't really know that until they found her body, right? So, like, they could have just assumed she walked away from a car that had two flat tires with the keys, I guess. Yeah, I guess they could have. You know? So, um, I mean, later on, they know, obviously, they made a mistake there, but, you know, I don't know. It is a hard one. It's very hard. There is a fellowship um, prize now given to honor students um, at Rice University in her name. So that is kind of what the family and her husband have done to remember her. Um, Sadly, Julie Sanchez was killed a few hours after Margaret. Watts spotted Julie changing her tire on the side of the freeway as she tried to change the tire he slashed her throat and left her for dead she did survive the interesting thing though about this uh julie and julie trying to change her tires is when you go back to margaret and margaret and the two um flat tires with these cases even though he didn't admit to it in part of his confession i have always wondered if he's actually responsible for flattening the tire oh, yeah i mean we've seen that before right i mean that's that's definitely a, a reese hey, uh, then these last three women all on the same day uh yeah i think he's done two in the same so day. he did phyllis Tam on the 17th of January. Yes. Okay. Then he did Margaret. And then he turns around and does, um, right, Julie. Julie. Uh huh. All, yeah, the, all, all the, the same, same day. day. I mean, and again, you know, this is, this is one of those things where he's out patrolling, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think when you look at the, the first one, that was earlier in the day. So it's like almost like he got that rush and he just kept going. Oh. Yeah, I mean, because he, okay, so the ones at like 2.30 in the morning, yeah, I mean, he's out at it all night. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. On January 29th, 1982, Watts follows, followed Alice Myrtle, who was a 19-year-old, back to her Seabrook apartment where he stabbed her three times with an ice pick. She also survived. And again, you know, when we're starting to talk about Seabrook and some of these other areas, Rice University is a little bit farther out. But the location that she was at Gillies, that's in Pasadena. So that's definitely area that we have uh, talked about a couple different times on the Texas Killing Fields. And so that's where we really felt like these cases were pretty important to bring you back into this area because he was very, very active here. Mm -hmm. And even though he was here for only roughly about 18 months, I believe is the time period that he's here. He's incredibly active. And when you look at the chunk of crimes that he confesses to 
and is responsible for it, it almost clears like a huge amount out of that area. When you look at 1982, almost everything that you see in the 18-month period that he was here is either one that he confesses to or another one that they think he's att he's attributed to. Mm -hmm. And you know what's really weird is because he does come here and he isn't here very long before he's um, apprehended, right? So it's almost like he came here for like that last shebang or something yeah you know what I, I mean like because it's a lot like all at once well he certainly didn't come here and decide to stop yeah so and that's just what we know of because if yeah. you can do three people one day and then you're going a few months i don't believe that <laughs> just don't i mean unless you just get so tired i mean i don't know well yeah um so on the on the january 30th 1982 patty johnson of galveston Galveston, Watts slashed her throat, but she survived. Now, here's what's interesting about that. So she survives, and another man was sentenced to life in prison for her attack. So, and it took a while to get him out after Watts confessed. And that's what's so sad about the whole, that whole thing. You know, it's that it does take a while to um, release the innocent, you know. But, and I don't know the details. Maybe I should know the details. But how did they put that other guy on the hook for that uh i think he was like uh, just wrong place wrong time or i think he was an ex um boyfriend of her oh, okay, okay. yeah and uh and that's why um and can you imagine what that was like for her though too because i mean she truly believed that they had gotten the right guy and he was spending life in prison so she's starting her life over basically mm -hmm. and then to have it all drug up and then the survivor guilt of having the wrong person in prison even and truly believing it yeah you know i i, I know that would have to be hard to deal with <laughs> so then on february 7th 1982 elena uh some samander was a 20-year-old University of Houston sophomore, had gone out to the tavern with some friends. She was found in a dumpster not far from the tavern that she went out to. Watts actually strangled her with her own blouse and then dumped her in the dumpster. Um, sadly, it was a guy who was driving down the alley who actually saw her feet and pulled over to see if he could help. Um, and again... You know, as you talk about him trolling areas, he does seem to tend to troll university areas, too. Um, then, like you said, you know, anytime you get to this large gap, you have a gap from February 7th, 1982 to March 20th, 1982, when on March 20th, 1982, Emily Elizabeth Lockyer was 14 years old she had run away from her home in seattle to join her father in texas he worked at the union truck stop in brookshire texas um off state off interstate 10 which if anybody's kind of familiar with interstate 10 that's the interstate that kind of takes you through the houston area but also into louisiana um when she arrived she got a job as a waitress before she went missing, her and her father had a, gotten into a bad fight, and he thought that she had run away again, and that she had she had returned home, but actually she had returned home and was confronted by bots. Um, so she kind of returned home, 
got her work clothes, was on her way to work, and then Watts confronted her. So this is one of those cases that um, she was missing. And actually, the interesting part of this case is that Brookshire, Texas, um, they did not uh, enter into the immunity deal. And I think part of that is because investigators didn't really know that Brookshire, where where she was abducted in Brookshire was not in the uh, Montgomery County where he had confessed, where they did have an immunity deal. So, well, and then he might've just had like diarrhea at the mouth that when he was going into this, yeah. so they just may not have had time to like, or even stop them maybe, you know? Yeah. And I'm sorry, that was um, not in Harris County, but in Waller County was the difference. So Waller County was the one who did not sign the immunity deal. Um, what this meant basically was that if Waller County uh, ever found any evidence that would have that would have convicted him, um, like DNA or something like that, if they ever would have found DNA, um, they could have come back and charged him with her murder. However, even though that's brought up later that maybe they could have possibly done that, it seems like they might not have actually been able to do that because I think it would have been fruit of the poisonous tree. He led them to her body. Her body was in a culvert off of Interstate 10, and he's the one who led them to her body. So I don't see how they could have come back and said, but now we found DNA on like her sweater or something like that. because. To me, I think the court would have said, yeah, but you can't use any part of the confession, which the confession led to her body. They would have had to make a case that would have said they would have found it anyway. And I think that would have been a difficulty because would you have found it with the DNA still viable? I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, just don't know. But um, we'll never really know. Anyway, because in that case, they actually lost all the evidence that they had. So, um, it's probably in somebody's basement. <laughs> it could be in somebody's basement. But on March 27th, 1982, Edith Ann Labette of Dallas was a fifth year medical student at the University of Texas Medical School in Galveston. She was, um, out on her early morning run when she was confronted by Watts, she was stabbed 17 times in the chest and um, an upper body near the Galveston campus. She was found um, in the walkway between the two apartments. So somebody coming out of an apartment uh, found her on the walkway. That uh, same day, Glenna Kirby was... Um, Watts tried to kill another woman just blocks away after he killed Labette, and that would be uh, Glenna Kirby. Due to the fact that his hands were wet and still covered with Labette's blood, the woman was able to slip away out of his hands and run. Can you imagine that? I just, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's nightmares. Yeah. So, and then again, a large chunk of time that kind of goes by a couple weeks here. On April 15th, 1982, Yolanda de Garcia, a 22-year-old 
jewelry store bookkeeper. She was stabbed twice in the chest by Watts as she walked to her Houston home from the bus stop. She was clutching a bag that contained her work shoes. Watts drove past her and then stopped, let her pass him, and then he got out and stabbed her. Although Watts did not confess to it, Yolanda had burns on her arms like Watts had also tortured her before killing her. So, you know, it's kind of a strange part of, of that because we don't really see that anywhere else. But again, I mean, he's a sadistic mm -hmm. uh, SOB. I mean, and pardon me for saying so, but that's, that's just, he really is. Yes. On April 21st, 1982, Suzanne Searles was a 25-year-old who was coming home from a party driving on Interstate 10 when Watts saw her. She had moved to Houston from Iowa and worked at a printing company. Watts followed her home to her apartment. He grabbed her as she got out of the car. He held her head um, in the water of a flower pot that he found nearby, but he still couldn't tell if she was dead, so he strangled her. He broke uh, her glasses and her shoes. Her broken glasses and shoes were actually found in her car in the parking lot of the apartment complex. But he buried her kind of in the weeds at the edge of the edge of a grassy block in West Houston. So basically, he assaults her there at the apartment complex by trying to um, hold her head underwater in a flower pot and then strangles her to death. But he actually took the body with him and um, drove uh, quite a ways away. It and makes you wonder when he does something like that, was he interrupted? You know what I mean? Like, like, cause he's not one to, to really do that. No, he's not one to do. So to, do to, to take her, it's weird. Like something there happened. So when police dug her up, she only had her bra and one stocking on. So, you know, although his crimes did not have a sexual nature, it does make you wonder about this one. Slightly, but I mean, he also liked to, to use their clothes to strangle and stuff, too. So, That's I true. Mean, you know, it could just be something like that. Or he could have tried to tie this one up, too. I mean... Oh, yeah, who knows? Maybe there wasn't a sapling you know, available. I mean, it would be it would be something if it was sexual, but I don't know. So when police actually, because they hadn't found her body before he confessed, so police actually took him out there um, while they um, wandered around. And then when they started digging up her body, he didn't seem bothered by it at all. He actually uh, asked the officers. He wanted to know when he could get a hamburger. And uh, so you want it bloody in the middle? You know, I know. But, you know, and what what really gets me about this is the officers that are like, so after it was all done, we kind of took him for a hamburger. I mean, I just I would have been like, no, no, you're not getting a hamburger. But, you know, they they also probably trying to keep him complicit, like to see if he'd say anything else. So that's a hard call, too. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. You know, it's almost like feeding a child. Stop crying. Uh -huh. Give me what I want. You know, like. And he has a low IQ anyway, so I can see him being a little like that, you know? So, everyone involved in this thought that with the deal that they had made Watts, that he would be locked up for the rest of his life. 
sadly, in 2004, the Texas Court of Appeals took a look at the um, deal that Watts had made and ruled that Watts was not properly informed that the water he used in the tub while he was attempting to drown Lori was being classified as a deadly weapon. So because it's being classified as a deadly weapon, that means that he, he used a deadly weapon in attempting to kill her. So he would not be eligible for early release um, or for like good behavior um, time. So they would give bonus time to inmates for good behavior. Um, they give bonus time to them for donating blood, you know, for just being a basic good human being. And so Watts had pretty much racked up quite a bit of this. Um, and the courts look at it and they say, well, he, you really didn't tell him that the water was the deadly weapon in this. And so therefore he's now eligible for all of that. And it looked like Watts was going to be walking out of prison in 2006. hard thing about this is everybody looking at this he's 52 years old at that point the point in time that he would be walking out of prison everybody looked at looking at this said this guy literally will murder within the week oh yeah um and uh but they really didn't have anything so again when you know you're talking about them going back and looking at that case for dna to try to look at charging him that's how desperate they were they were looking at anything that they could possibly do to keep him in prison well the one good thing about this was that thank goodness michigan did not make the deal because the attorney general begged the public of michigan to come forward and try to convict Watts of murder so that he would not be released. A man came forward and identified Watts as the man he had say, seen stabbing Helen Dutcher, 25-year-old woman who was stabbed 20, um, stabbed 12 times in Michigan on December 1st, 1979. Although they could not use the confessions to convict Watts, um, the judge did allow the confessions to come into the trial against him for the murder of Helen. So they couldn't use any confession, anything he said about the confession. The fact that he had confessed to the Texas murders, those did come in and he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Michigan also tried him for the murder of Gloria Steele, who we talked about earlier. He was also convicted and sentenced to life in prison for that. His life would not last much longer. He died in prison on September 7th, uh, 2007. So to kind of wrap things up here, he is suspected of four other murders in the Houston Galveston area and um they're pretty sure that he was involved in some of those well actually they're pretty sure that he was involved in all of them but again you know he didn't confess to them he so didn't there's no way to, to really connect right. him right but timing works out pretty well on that um one is the March 31st 1982 um 
strangling of Mary Castillo, who was found in a Houston ditch. The next one is the February 3rd, 1982, Christina McDonald vanished while hitchhiking home from a party on Rice University campus, again, with Rice University. Um, as far as I know, she's actually never been found. May 1st, 1982, Sherry Lynn Street, a 16-year-old from Westbury High School, was last seen at a dress shop in Houston. She had her mother's car and her mother reported her missing. Her body was found in the car on May 4th. She was found in the uh, slumped over the front seat of the um, car. With her, it doesn't seem like they gave like the manner of death. So I'm assuming that she possibly was strangled, but they never say strangled or stabbing in any of the reports that I can find on her. And the last one is uh, Gloria. Cavias, a 32-year-old exotic dancer, found dead in a trash dumpster, wrapped in cast-off curtains. Um, yeah, so I mean, if you just listen to those four descriptions of these women, again, all very different, but all things he's known to be. Yeah, all things he's I mean, the do. car down to the dumpsters, you yeah. know, the strangling. I mean, this is, and again, look at the dates, February, right. March, May. You know, so yeah, it definitely seems like one of his spree killings. Uh -huh. And so we wanted to bring you this information on Watts so that it gave you just a little bit of information on what kind of was going on in the Killingsville area, another possible suspect. Although it does seem like most of what's available to, for him to be tied to, um, he. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners, so please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.